different. I'm actually taking this weekend off from preaching, and so I don't really have a sermon to share today, but I didn't want to not post anything this weekend. So I was thinking about what to do, and I had this idea to read for all of you the senior project that I wrote in college for my pastoral studies um, degree. So that's what I'm going to be doing. And the research paper is called Individualism in American Christian Culture. So I'm going to just read through it. It is about nine years old, so I'm not sure how dated it is. I didn't go back and read through it first before recording this. But I hope that it's enjoyable for you. I know every time I go back and read through it that I really enjoy it. So I hope you do too. So with that in mind, let's begin. During the Protestant Reformation, an age of enlightenment that took place between the 16th and 18th century, a shift began to occur where people started viewing themselves as individuals whose lives were disconnected from the people around them rather than thinking of themselves as parts of a greater social group, which had been the overall mindset of the people before this time. This change in mindset among the people of the world also had an effect on how people viewed God and Christian teachings. The repercussions from this way of thinking can still be seen in the world today. Although individualism is a mindset that can be seen in small amounts throughout the entire world, it is distinctly evident in American ideology to the point where it has greater influence on people's lives than the religious traditions with which they associate themselves. This ideology has affected the way that Christians walk out their faith. For example, something such as a congregational worship service, where the goal is to worship God as one body of believers, has become a thousand individual experiences of worship rather than an individual act of worship by a thousand people. The first step in fighting against individualism among American Christianity is to recognize the sources of the individualistic ideology prominent in our world today. The origin of this ideology can best be observed within the actions and teachings of Martin Luther and John Calvin in the Protestant Reformation, as well as the intellectual shift that took place during the Age of Enlightenment. By observing these things, it will be easier to recognize the aspects of American Christianity that reflect the ideology of individualism. The Protestant Reformation, which resulted in the establishment of the Protestant churches, first began on October 31, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, challenging the theory and practices of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church, on the door of the church in Wittenberg. Although the conditions that led to his revolutionary stand had existed for hundreds of years, in his Theses, Luther urged that religion rested on individual faith based on the guidance of the Bible rather than a communal experience obtained from dedication to the Roman Catholic Church. However, despite believing that a community of believers was not necessary for a believer to be in relationship with God, Luther still believed that a Christian's life was not meant to be walked out alone. Rather, Luther believed a Christian lives in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbor by love. Luther's separation from the Roman Catholic Church 
sparked the rise of Christian individualism because it was the primary significant tearing away of religion from an established body of believers. This original tearing away became a pattern that has continued among believers from that point on, continuing even in today's world. Although the reasoning for this separation was justified, as there were elements of the Roman Catholic system that were not specifically enjoined in the scriptures, which he strove to eliminate, Luther's stand as the Bible being the sole source of moral authority set the foundation for theology to be taken down a path which he never intended. Through Luther's efforts and the invention of printing with movable metal type, greatly increasing the circulation of books and new ideas throughout Europe, religion became less the province of a highly privileged clergy and more a direct expression of the beliefs of the people. With an abundance of books being printed and circulated throughout the world, Luther's teachings could be spread among the general public all across Europe. Several people read and believed Luther's writings, and his followers would eventually come to be seen as the first Protestants after the Second Diet of Speyer. Even if they did not entirely agree with Luther's theology, people from different kinds of social standing and backgrounds were being equipped to formulate their own theology from scripture apart from the assistance of educated members of clergy. One of these people, John Calvin, became an instrumental leader in formulating and spreading a systemic Reformation theology. Calvin supported Luther's separation from the Roman Catholic Church, believing that it was necessary to withdraw from fellowship with Rome that they may come to Christ. He refused to acknowledge the Roman Catholic Church as the true church, claiming, A religious body, nominally Christian, however holy its pretensions, however ancient its traditions, if it is corrupt in its ecclesiastical practices, if it does not faithfully proclaim the word of God and does not properly administer the sacraments, cannot legitimately be called the church, but rather the true church, faithfully proclaims the word of God and rightly administers the sacraments. Since, according to Calvin, the Roman Catholic Church was not accomplishing these two requirements of a true church, he was in support of a separation from them as a believer of the word. Despite Calvin's support for withdrawal from the Roman Catholic Church, however, he adamantly opposed the concept of further schisms within the body of Christ, which he described as a habit of the heart. Calvin approved of Luther's separation because Calvin viewed the teachings of the, of the Roman Catholic Church as heresy, which he described as a matter of doctrine and a transgression of the truth. Calvin's definition of schism, on the other hand, is a division of a community into conflicting groups, the forming of conflicting parties and factions that is a failure to love with the love revealed in Christ Jesus and given by the Spirit of God, and is based on the mistaken view that a lack of respect for others somehow reflects a greater reverence for God, which reveals an underlying self-regard that is inconsistent with the humility to which Christ calls his followers. In summary, Calvin was in support of divisions that took place in the church within the context of teachings that did not align with biblical truth, but adamantly opposed divisions in Christianity over any kind of resolvable issue. In order to deter the general public, 
that was being given access to scripture and the opportunity to form their own theology on an individual level from causing further schisms within the church, Calvin provided instructions to his followers regarding the development of personal theology in correlation with the reading of scripture. He urged, Reading scripture is not for the purpose of developing or confirming theology or doctrine, Rather, the principal purpose of theology and doctrine is to clarify and to protect the act of reading scripture. Calvin's answer for preventing schism in a society where it was possible for individuals to read scripture without the apparent benefit or interference of an interpretive mediator was for Christians to focus on Jesus Christ rather than themselves. Calvin also put together a pattern in his church's organization that incorporated ideas of representative government where members in the congregation elected pastors, teachers, presbyters, and deacons so that they could provide systemic doctrine under which believers could unite so that further schisms would not take place. Due to the great lengths that Calvin went to in order to prevent schisms from occurring within the body of Christ, it can be seen that he never intended the separation from the Roman Catholic Church to grow into a widespread individualistic ideology among Christians. Unfortunately, once the people of the Protestant Reformation had a taste of separating from a body of believers due to differing theologies and opinions concerning scripture, it spun out of control. Michael Jenkins, academic dean and professor of theology at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, notes, Once the genie of schism escaped the bottle, once the crumbs were shaken from the bottom of Pandora's mixed bag, we could scarcely avoid the consequences of continuing schism, and I mean by this a continuing spirit of schism, of bitterness and judgment, within and among the communities that made up the reformed movement itself. These religious schisms that took place at an individual level throughout the Protestant Reformation paved the way for an even greater movement of individual division from the concept of community, the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment is a term used to describe the trends in thought and letters in Europe and the American colonies during the 18th century where a great premium was placed on the discovery of truth through the observation of nature rather than through the study of authoritative sources such as Aristotle and the Bible. People began to rely on their own intellect and reasoning rather than scripture and the teachings of others in order to determine their individual beliefs and morals. Human reason was placed above faith. Worldly happiness was seen as more important than religious salvation and progress was viewed as something that would only happen if the restraints of spirituality and tradition were left behind. This emphasis on individual reasoning rather than shared theology exalted observational science as the ultimate truth, which rendered the notion of faith in the unseen as obsolete. By taking God out of the picture, the notion was developed that man was neither good nor bad, but rather interested principally in survival. Because survival was the only matter of consequence in the midst of those behind the Enlightenment movement, 
there was no longer any need for them to be held accountable for their actions as long as such actions did not interfere in the lives of others. Since the church was the primary source of teachings concerning the distinction between right and wrong, people's view of the church shifted, yet they did not abandon it altogether. According to the Funk and Wagnall's New World Encyclopedia, although they saw the church as the principal force that had enslaved the human minds in the past, most Enlightenment thinkers did not renounce religion altogether. They opted for a form of deism, accepting the existence of God and of a hereafter, but rejecting the intricacies of Christian theology. This Enlightenment's view of religion, where it became acceptable to believe whatever an individual wanted, while still taking part in religious ceremonies, became the basis for modern ideas of liberalism against superstition and intolerance. Even though religion itself was not entirely despised by the people of the Enlightenment, the church as an institution, because of its wealth, political power, and suppression of the free exercise of reason, was attacked with more intensity and ferocity than anything else. Echoes of Enlightenment teachings can still be seen in the individualistic ideologies and morals of those immersed in American culture. Even the Declaration of Independence's commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness reflects the principles and teachings that were developed through the Age of Enlightenment. In fact, in the eyes of Europeans, the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War signaled that for the first time, some individuals were going beyond the mere discussion of enlightened ideas and were actually putting them into practice. These principles were not only present during the formation period of the United States of America, but they are still present and have developed further in the America of today. America is arguably the most individualistic society the world has ever seen, with individualism often being viewed as the hallmark of American culture. The overall assumption of American society is that the individual takes precedence over the group because freedom, the central focus of American life, implies individual independence. Even as students in the educational system, young Americans are taught that, with a superior scientific worldview being the only thing that is objective in the world, religion and morality is completely subjective and differs depending on each individual's view of truth. This modern ideology turns morality and virtue into personal values that individuals are free to accept or reject. As the educational system of American schools puts just as much emphasis on making students simply feel good about themselves as it does on providing them with an actual education. Because of this mentality, Children in America are being raised without the belief that there is one overall truth to which all people are held accountable. This does not disappear when these students grow older, as indicated by a study in the United States that discovered no relationship between business ethics and business practices. These ethics that are held by American residents appear to be subject to whatever means a situation requires in order to achieve one's individual desires. These morals and ethics become subjective so that the individual pursuit of happiness, 
can remain unhindered. Because of this ideology, any type of authority, whether from the teachings of others or the beliefs already held by an individual, is ultimately dismissively ignored or entirely rejected for the sake of personal gain. Richard Stivers, a sociology professor at Illinois State University, explains that this rejection of personal and cultural authority among Americans produces feelings of release, freedom, and power. No one can tell me what to do, for we are equal. At the same time, however, we cannot rely on others for assistance. They are not morally bound to us in a reciprocal relationship. Moreover, our relationships to others become more competitive, more dangerous. This shying away from objective, biblical truth and modernized emphasis on teaching children that the most important thing is for them to be happy, rather than to seek out truth and choose between right and wrong, is not limited to just the secular educational system, but rather it can be viewed in the parenting of Christian parents as well. Stivers also notes, In medieval parental love, love was an element of moral discipline for Christian parents, one of whose chief obligations was the formation of the child's character. Much later in the 19th and especially 20th centuries, love and discipline became separated to a great extent so that love became the giving or receiving of affection and discipline became a punitive form of control. Parents may need to employ both love and discipline, but the two have now become distinct so that love can be aestheticized. We see here that even the Christians in America are accepting this individualistic mindset where personal happiness is emphasized by separating in children's mind the actions of love and discipline. Love becomes viewed as something that is good, and discipline becomes understood as something that is bad. Since good and bad are opposites, discipline that comes from love is viewed as an impossibility. This emphasis on personal happiness causes a change in mindset to take place where a communal group of people such as a family, an interpersonal relationship such as marriage, or any other gathering of people, has become for us a collection of individuals created by individuals for their own individual advantages, and are increasingly accepted as matters of individual contract and convenience. Even among Christians, we have begun to adapt this mindset, causing the motives behind our actions to be self-focused and no different than non-believers. This comparison can be plainly seen in an explanation by Piotr Millais, I hope I'm getting that name pronounced right, a theologian from Harvard Divinity School. Instead of trusting in God, sinners trust in themselves. Consequently, instead of loving the neighbor, they love themselves. They are inexorably compelled to direct their works not to the neighbor, but ultimately to themselves. In practice, this means that the sinner's works, however good they may appear, are ultimately only a modality of self-interest. Works that appear good to fellow humans, and would by no stretch of the imagination be regarded as crimes, may actually be mortal sins if, at the bottom of it, 
they are used to serve one's selfish goals, and if God's agency is not explicitly, humbly, and prayerfully recognized in them. If, as Christians, we follow this individualistic mindset of becoming more concerned with our own lives rather than the people around us, then our hearts become identical to the rest of the world regardless of any type of righteous or religious actions we may perform. When this mindset is followed through, even our Christ-like actions can develop tainted motivations where what is done in the name of the neighbor's well-being, for his or her own sake, and out of obedience to the moral law, can really be simply the desire of the moral agent to feel better about him or herself. This mindset of doing everything for the primary purpose of exalting oneself is perhaps best revealed in the aspect of consumerism within American culture and lifestyles. Consumerism stems from a desire to obtain things for oneself, completely disregarding the use of that time and energy for the purpose of benefiting others. Mindy Maycant, a doctoral candidate in theology and ethics at Duke Divinity School, explains consumerism is focused on the desire of desire. This joy of desiring becomes a never-ending cycle as the very act of acquisition fuels rather than satisfies the desire. Desiring in and of itself becomes the focal point of consumerism, to the degree where it no, long, it no longer matters exactly what is being obtained, just as long as something is being obtained. It has become so pointless that several people were even willing to bid on a listing of nothing on eBay from numerous sellers. This is the complete opposite of what existed before the Protestant Reformation and the Age of Enlightenment. What started as Christians breaking away from the heretical teachings and hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church has transformed into the complete and unhindered focus on one's own self. American Christians are rejecting community, shared truth, and authority, and are instead incorporating concepts from the ideology of individualism into their beliefs and lifestyles. In light of this downward spiral into an individualistic mentality, it becomes necessary to look at what effects this ideology has on how modern American Christians walk out their life in comparison to the model set by the New Testament church in order to identify the areas where there is a need for change. In the matter of theological formation, perhaps no greater example can be found in scripture than the group of Christians at Berea. In Acts 17.11, we are told, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. There are three things in this verse that we can observe concerning the manner by which the Bereans form their theology. The first thing worth noting is that they received the message of truth with eagerness. They were excited to discover what truths they could find within the pages of Scripture. They did not view these truths as subjective or as things with little value. Rather, they were eager to understand it to the fullest extent. 
The second point in this passage is that the Bereans examined the scriptures every day. In this phrase, we see that not only were they unwilling to believe a truth simply because someone spoke it to them, wanting to double-check the reliability of Paul's teachings within written scripture, but they also continued going this extra mile every single day. They did not, after a few days of comparing Paul's teaching to scripture, decide that everything he was saying must be true. Instead, they researched everything in order to make sure they were not deceived or misled in any way. The third noteworthy aspect of the Bereans' behavior was that they allowed Paul to teach them. They were not arrogant to the point where they believed their own intellect was far superior to any insights that Paul had to offer them, but instead they humbled themselves. The Bereans took the time to listen to a teacher whose life had been dedicated to studying scriptural truths. Compared to the Bereans' methods of theological formation, some significant differences can be seen in the behavior of American Christians. Whereas the Bereans eagerly sought to learn truth from Paul's teachings, American Christians seem to be more concerned with teaching that is inspiring rather than teaching that is inspired by God. If the teaching that is being presented in a church does not make an individual feel good about who he or she is, then that person feels as though, I am free to shop around until I find the community that better suits my needs or is at least more to my liking. Dismissing anything they do not like or agree with, some American Christians weed through scripture ignoring anything about it that doesn't make them immediately happy as though they were eating the meat and spitting out the bones. In doing so, we believers reduce the sacred things such as scripture to nothing more than commodities that are supposed to bring us happiness and even view God as a tool we employ, a force we control, and a resource we plunder. We ascribe value to him based not on who he is, but on what he can do for us, thus reflecting a consumerism mentality. Another difference between the Bereans and the American Christian culture is that the Bereans would check scripture on a daily basis in order to verify that everything Paul taught was portrayed accurately. In American culture, verses are pulled out of their original context and plastered on billboards and Facebook profiles without verifying whether or not the verse is being used in the appropriate context. A famous example of this is the verse Jeremiah 29.11, in which is stated, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Many Christians read this verse and automatically assume that the you in this verse is singular and that God is talking to them as an individual. In reality, it is shown in a few verses earlier in the chapter, Jeremiah 29.4, that the you is plural and God is actually addressing the entire nation of Israel during their exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Of course, this doesn't mean that God can't reveal to us something about himself in his past words and actions that were originally addressed to someone else, but the context is still essential in understanding the entire truth held within passages of Scripture. 
When Christians disregard the historical context of Scripture, whether being aware of it and choosing to ignore it, or being unaware of it and refusing to research it before proclaiming what they think it means for the purpose of applying it to their individual life, it very easily blanks out the vitally important corporate relationship that Scripture presumes, which is the presence of the church, and makes the individual the source of authority for understanding the text. Rather than receiving the truth and faith that already exists within Scripture, we American Christians instead invent our own personal faith and in doing so end up watering down the gospel to fit our culturally shaped prejudices. There was even a woman who went so far as to simply name her faith after herself since even though she claimed to believe in God and she developed her faith through the reading of scripture, it only consisted of just her little voice. Lastly, in the comparison of theological formation between the early church and American Christians today, we find that the Bereans allowed Paul to teach them. At first, it appears as though this is an occurrence that is carried over into American Christian culture. We have pastors all across the nation who stand behind pulpits and preach in churches every Sunday. However, we are not as accepting of having educated ministers help us form our theology as it may first appear. In an online survey, more Christians reported going to books and the internet than to their pastors in order to find answers to their theological questions. In Ephesians 4, 11-12, we see that pastors and teachers have been appointed by Christ for equipping believers in the building up of the body of Christ. However, Christians are listening to the words of people they have never met in order to form their individual theology, rather than seeking help from pastors and teachers. Educated teachers are essential to the body of Christ because although the Bible contains public truth that is available to everyone who has access to Scripture, this fact of the gospel is a truth to tell rather than something immediately obvious to all. If educated pastors and teachers are not trusted with teaching the truths of Scripture within the body of Christ, such teaching will increasingly be undertaken by individuals or groups that are not necessarily accountable to the total community. We can see elements of the individualistic ideology that is present in our world today through these comparisons of differing methods for theological formation between the early church and the modern Christian culture in America. Rather than seeking truth, we seek inspiration. Instead of accepting the full reality of Scripture, we bend it around our own preferences. We even place ourselves as the primary authority on Scripture instead of listening to the teachings of those who have spent more time studying the Word than we have. The next thing to contrast between the early church and American Christianity is the dedication to accountability within a local body of believers. We can find examples of believers keeping each other accountable in the early church within the apostles' habit of going on missionary journeys in pairs, as stated by Jesus in Mark 6, verse 7. Paul's rebuke of Peter in Galatians chapter 2, and Paul's letters to Timothy. All of these examples display a different type of accountability. The apostles' habit of performing ministry in pairs reflects a partnership 
where believers walk through life together. Paul's rebuke of Peter shows an accountability where it is necessary to call out a believer on his or her inappropriate behavior. And Paul's letters to Timothy reveals an accountability of a mentor to a student. The American church has failed miserably in the establishment of accountability on all three of these levels. In the same survey mentioned earlier, 35% of Christians stated that they did not have any kind of accountability partner whatsoever, and 28% of them said that they had somewhat of an accountability partner. This means that less than half of the people who responded to this survey had a person in their life that regularly held them accountable for their actions. It's interesting to note that many Christians actually desire to be held accountable for their spiritual lives in a manner that is stricter than a form of self-checking that one is still trying to be a Christian. Similar to that of the first biblical example provided, there is a desire among Christians to be involved in an accountability partnership where life is walked through side by side. This shared life is more than just the mere time spent in the meetings when the church gathers, it is ultimately about the need for community and sharing the whole of life with one another. This can only be obtained in the accountability that is reflected in the disciples' use of pairs for missionary journeys. Unfortunately, the growing ideology of individualism within Christianity only tears the body of Christ further away from the opportunity for accountability, Stephen Hahn, a doctoral candidate at Asia-Pacific Theological Seminary, explains, When spirituality is a private matter, no one else can be involved, even in a positive way. When the church is characterized by privatized Christianity, if individual believers set their goals low and remain relatively immature, that is their business alone. If other believers set their goals high and gain great spiritual maturity, good for them. But it has nothing to do with a believer who is not particularly interested in spiritual growth. This is the result when progress is encouraged by the church, but not really expected. In order for an impacting level of accountability to be restored within American Christian culture, the ideology of individualism that convinces believers that their faith is a personal matter alone must be eradicated. The second early church example of accountability is probably the toughest to take and most difficult to utilize correctly. This accountability where a believer is called out for his or her inappropriate behavior runs more contradictory to, to a consumer-driven individualistic mindset than the other two examples. However, it is also arguably the most important out of the three because walking away from spiritual conflict rather than trying to resolve it causes further divisions in the church. A lack of corrective accountability can be led to a downward spiral of destruction within a body of believers. Hahn explains this condition of the church by noting, when Christians see spirituality as a private matter, they feel that they have no right to address anyone else's spiritual condition. All of this excessive privacy in matters of spirituality results in a lack of confrontation, a lack of discipline, a lack of concern about spiritual matters, and inevitably leads to a general decrease in sanctification in the church. 
Without corrective accountability, it is possible for a congregation to have people holding leadership positions within the church who are still spiritually immature because there were never any consequences for their lack of spiritual growth. The third example of accountability displayed by the early church is the accountability of a mentor to a student as displayed in the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy spent many years learning from Paul until he was trusted to take care of a church in Ephesus. Paul challenged and encouraged Timothy throughout his life so that Timothy would be able to mentor other believers in Paul's place. It is a sad reality that people may attend a church for many years and never experience their spiritual lifestyle being challenged by those with a deeper level of spiritual maturity. Mentor-student accountability provides a level of growth that can never be fully experienced in peer-to-peer relationships. However, the opportunities for mentor-student relationships are dwindling because there are fewer people in the church today who have experienced a student-mentor relationship. Bill Hull, author of the book The Complete Book of Discipleship on Being and Making Followers of Christ, explains, The reason disciple-making often fails is that we don't expect it to reproduce. Christians need to go into these accountability partnerships with the mentality of it gradually expanding to involve newer members of the church community. In all three of these different areas of accountability, individualism in the Christian culture of America fails in comparison to the examples set in scripture by the early church. By placing oneself in the center of religion, accountability is viewed as a hindrance rather than an asset. After all, if an individual is held accountable to what he or she believes at one point in time, that person will be unable to change those beliefs if the pursuit of immediate happiness requires such an action. The final comparison I want to make between the ideologies of the early church and the lifestyles of American Christians is in the perception of purpose for involvement among a congregation of believers. In the community-minded attitude of the early church, the purpose of being involved in a church was for the edification and expansion of the body of Christ. In the modern American church, the mindset of consumerism causes Christians to look for what they can receive from a gathering of believers rather than what they have to offer. Scripture shows us in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35, that the early church believers shared their possessions and wealth with one another so that there would be no one in the church who was in need. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul talks about how every believer has something to offer, such as a hymn or word of instruction for the strengthening of the church. Ian Hussey, a professor at Malian College, observes, When the body of Christ assembled, the powerful kinship-like relationships, the brotherly kiss, the sharing of possessions and meals, and the corporate worship of God were the tangible witness to the invisible reality of the kingdom of God. Although Christians today cannot simply follow all the practices and forms of the first century because they may be cultural forms rather than timeless principles, modern church culture in America 
appears to have left the notion of communal gatherings being for the purpose of outward edification completely behind, replacing it instead with the desire of inward consumerism. We find this consumer-driven perception displayed throughout even our handling of Sunday morning services. Hahn explains, It is a symptom of the widespread nature of hyper-individualism in the church that Christians take biblical concepts, relationships, and terms such as prayer, prophecy, Lord, Savor, Pentecost, etc., and add the word personal to it when the Bible does not. Three areas where this ideology can be seen are in our views of worship, teaching, and prayer. A closer look at our manner of handling these three areas reveals ways we have distorted these once righteous disciplines around ourselves. The first area where we can see this consumerism reflected is in our corporate worship, specifically within the words we sing. First, we must be reminded about what the purpose of congregational worship is in the first place. In the words of Husse, corporate worship should not focus on the worshipers, whether they are seekers or not, but on the one being worshipped. Dan Yarnell, a professor at Springdale College who has a master's degree in New Testament theology, explains, In worship, we need to be reminded that we are part of a worldwide movement of Christians who join their voices together when the church expresses worship. Before continuing, it's worth reiterating that the purpose in this paper is to look specifically at the methods of worship within the congregational setting. This paper will not be addressing worship that takes place away from the corporate body of believers in times of individual solitude. By taking a look at the words used in the top nine worship songs of 2013 according to praise charts, which includes such songs as Oceans by Hillsong United and Great I Am by New Life Worship, it quickly becomes evident that the songs we've seen reflect an individualistic ideology. Despite being used in settings where a group of believers are worshipping beside one another, none of these nine songs ever once use a plural pronoun. Instead of using words such as we, us, or are, these songs instead use the singular pronouns I, me, and my. Several of these songs even talk about what I want, or I need, putting the grammatical subject of the sentences as the individual alone who is singing the song, rather than to God, who worship is supposed to be directed towards, or without even including the body of believers around the individuals who are singing. Part of the process in helping an individual be transported beyond oneself comes by transcending the standpoint of the I and moving toward the you in order to form the we. It is not as though worship is viewed as a trivial matter for American Christians either. According to Sky Jathani, the managing editor of Leadership Magazine at Christianity Today International, and the author of The Divine Commodity, Discovering a Faith Beyond Consumer Christianity, two generations ago, when denominational loyalty was high, a church was chosen primarily based on the doctrinal beliefs it espoused. 
Today, the music style used in worship is the issue of paramount importance when choosing a church. In the online survey mentioned earlier in this paper, respondents' feedback showed that enjoyable worship was a greater factor in deciding whether or not an individual would attend a church than whether or not that church was involved in effective outreach. Since Christians pay so much attention to the worship used in churches, having songs that reflect an individualistic ideology only further damages the mindset of believers within the body of Christ. The church is not only a community of praise, it is also called to be a community of truth. Because of this, scriptural teaching is also a primary part of Sunday morning services. Although the proclamation of biblical truth should be at the core of any kind of gathering of believers, it is not always received in this intended manner. The purpose of Scripture is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which reads, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In this verse, it can be observed that the purpose of Scripture is to cause a change that is evident in the lives of others. Unfortunately, this is not always the case in American Christian culture. In American ideology, knowledge became identified with power. Having knowledge meant conquering, subjugating the known object to one's will. Christians have become less concerned with how the truth of Scripture should affect their day-to-day -day behavior and have become more concerned in how they can utilize Scripture to their own advantage. Yarnell notes, Far too often, particularly in Western expressions of Christianity, Bible study or listening to a sermon has taken place without the necessary work towards appropriate application and ongoing engagement. The aim should be transformational, personally, corporately, and in community. Christians will listen to the teaching of Scripture, yet they do not have a tendency to follow through by opening up their hearts to its transformative truth. Christians display patterns of holding the teachings of Scripture at arm's length and don't make the effort to change the behavior so that it lines up with Scripture. In fact, the assumption is that the church is responsible for the spiritual growth of its members. So if members' lives are characterized by worldliness, it is the church's fault. Yet the church is still viewed as a place to meet each believer's individual spiritual needs. Not only do American Christians not participate in the responsibility of spiritual growth, they also blame the leadership of the church for not being able to move them closer to Christ, even as they refuse to take a step on their own. Instead, as mentioned earlier, they only pay attention to the biblical teachings that they think will benefit their own lives and throw out the rest. American Christians have come to believe that context is irrelevant. Value is found only in something's immediate usefulness, in its ability to satisfy one's immediate desire. Christian thought now seeks the reinvigoration of the good in secular society and turns the gospel into what it is not. It is important for Christians to allow all of Scripture 
to permeate their heart. Lastly, we can see how the mentality of prayer has changed in American Christian culture. The use of prayer is seen all throughout the early church as a means of requesting supernatural providence in times of need, such as the prayer meeting found in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that was held when Peter was thrown in prison, or when the disciples prayed about who should replace Judas as the twelfth disciple in Acts chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. These types of prayers, where something beyond human power or reasoning is being asked of God, referred to as prayers of petition, have seemed to become the primary type of prayer used throughout modern Christian culture. In a case study on small groups, Roger Walton, chair of the West Yorkshire Methodist District, noticed almost all prayers were for people in the group and their personal problems or for their friends facing illness. This indicates that very few prayers offered have to do with something other than an individual's immediate problem or an issue being confronted by someone the praying individual knows personally. Either way, both of these kinds of prayers are concerned with receiving something rather than giving something. Of course, not all prayer is focused on the individual who is praying, or on someone who is close to him or her, is automatically wrong. Prayers of petition are even an aspect that is reflected in the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-13. through 13. But Jesus' prayer example shows that there are many other kinds of prayer as well. There are also prayers of praise, thankfulness, and forgiveness. Yet these appear to be left out of prayer times within Christian circles today. It's even possible to see a distortion of the desire for the gift of the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues. The baptism of the Holy Spirit can be used for edification either individually, as seen in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2-4, through 4, or corporately, as described in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 12-13. through 13. However, some believers seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the sole purpose of wanting to be able to say that they have obtained the ability of speaking in tongues. Keith Warrington, author of Pentecostal Theology, A Theology of Encounters, says, There is a tendency to seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit in order to speak in tongues rather than to be influenced by the Spirit in one's life and behavior. This attitude towards the baptism of the Holy Spirit is also reflective of the consumerism ideology present in American Christianity because it seeks to obtain something that can be shown off rather than the ability to change oneself in order to become a better follower of Christ. In all three of these areas, the formation of theology, the dedication to accountability within a local body of believers, and the perception of purpose concerning involvement among a congregation of believers, it is possible to see how American individualism has corrupted Christian culture. Christians today have strayed away from the principles displayed in the actions of the early church. By replacing this current individualistic ideology with a more community-based mentality, it would be possible to move the modern church closer to what it was originally intended to be, a body of believers rather than an assortment of individuals who meet in the same place week after week. 
The first two sections of this paper have looked at the sources, nature, and effects that individualism has had in American Christian culture. It is clearly an issue having a negative impact on the theology of the modern church, and it needs to be addressed. This is, of course, no easy task to perform, so for this reason, the last section of this paper will look at the methods for preventing and counteracting this ideology currently running rampant in today's culture. In order to narrow this down a bit, I will only be addressing this issue within the context of church congregations. This will include both Sunday morning services and weekday activities. Although the following pages will be geared specifically for a church environment, many of the solutions provided can be applied by individual Christians as well. The topics of Sunday morning services and weekday activities can be broken down into even more specific areas of discussion. Within church services, there are four different areas where improvements can be made in order to help root out that seed of individualism. This includes the terminology that is used during these services, the public recognition of others, the development of inclusiveness, and the after-service programs. As briefly discussed in the section about worship, the use of certain terminology can have a tremendous impact on people. The things we say, the things we don't say, the way we say certain things, and even the number of words we use when saying something all convey a message. Sometimes the smallest of details can have the biggest of benefits or consequences. An example of this is the use of singular pronouns in worship songs within the context of corporate worship, as was already discussed. Such an action repeatedly hammers into Christian minds, albeit at a subconscious level, that even in the midst of hundreds or thousands of other believers, our relationship with God is a matter of personal faith alone that is not directly shared with anyone else around us. When Christians place an excessive amount of focus on their own relationship with God and their own personal growth, rather than taking into consideration their part as a member of a community of believers, they develop an attitude that the church exists to help me live out my personal relationship with my Lord. This mentality can develop beyond just what people expect from others, and can even go as far as to affecting the way they identify themselves on a daily basis. Miguel Farias, a professor of psychology and religion at Oxford, takes into consideration. Collectivism has been reported to be associated with self-concepts that include references to social entities. For example, I am a son, referring to family, or I am a Catholic, referring to religion. And to concrete self-concepts. For example, I am 20 years old, or I am a student. While individualism is associated with more abstract self-definitions, that often emphasize psychological traits, such as I am honest or I am intelligent. Through an intentional use of terminology, Christian leaders can have an effect on the way that people view their relationship with God by the type of words we use when describing Him. If we use abstract definitions and psychological traits when talking about God, such as God being loving and powerful, then we automatically convey that God deals on an individual level 
rather than a collective level because we are using terminology that conveys an individualistic mindset. Of course, this does not mean that we should never describe God in these ways. If a pastor or a teacher were trying to convey a message about how God's character is one that meets us on a personal level, then it would be beneficial for him or her to use this kind of terminology. However, if a person is wanting to convey these same characteristics of God as it applies to the entire body of believers as a whole instead of just individual Christians— then it becomes more beneficial to phrase it in a manner that uses more concrete and social terminology rather than abstract adjectives. Examples of using words strategically in order to convey a communal subtext would be using phrases such as God is love in place of God is loving, or saying God is the king of kings instead of saying God is powerful. By using slightly different terminology in this way, it is possible to get the same kind of message across, but with more powerful and beneficial implications within group contexts. It has been proven that the terminology that is used around people has an effect on those people's attitudes and actions. Megan K. Johnson, a member of the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Baylor University, observes in a survey that was conducted, Whereas priming religion led to increases in in-group cooperation, priming God led to increases in out-group cooperation. This is because religion motivates others to focus inward and avoid participation in broader society. But God is an entity that is believed in by many different kinds of religions. Christians need to be aware not only of what biblical truths are and are not being taught, but also of the manner by which these biblical truths are worded in order to produce the most beneficial results within the kingdom of God. Another point concerning what Christians should or should not say is the aspect of addressing certain issues instead of shying away from them and neglecting to talk about them. For instance, Concerning consumerism in American Christian culture, Jathani states, we must begin to deconstruct the values of consumer Christianity. Many church leaders have invested their energy and pulpits to combat other social issues, but have largely ignored consumerism. We must begin illuminating this danger and helping our people recognize the impact of these pervasive forces in our culture. Part of the solution for exterminating ideologies of individualism within modern Christian societies is simply letting believers know that the issue exists. Unless they are made aware of the danger, they will not be able to defend themselves or take action against it. Another area of Sunday morning services where there is a possibility for improvement is in the public recognition of others. By hearing about the actions and lives of other people, individuals are provided with the perception of a community outside of their own personal life. Opportunities for public recognition of others is available in the good works of others, as well as in providing context for scriptures that are being taught from the pulpit. It is no secret that a pastor alone is not capable of maintaining a church all by him or herself. There are plenty of other workers who partner alongside him or her for the purpose of accomplishing the work of Christ. 
by taking even just a few seconds every week to recognize from the pulpit the efforts or accomplishments in the lives of just one or two people in the church, a pastor can display for an entire congregation the importance of dedicating oneself to an entire community. Of course, it is not possible for a pastor to mention the praise reports and victories of every single person in the church. But not recognizing the works of anyone in the church removes an element of community in the lives of church congregations. The church becomes unable to celebrate in accomplishments as a body of believers when these actions are completely avoided. A word of caution for those who attempt to implement the public recognition of others' works, however, is to be wary of the appearance of playing favorites. If the pastor only mentions the works of a small group of people over and over again, it will sow seeds of jealousy throughout the congregation and will only spark further division. Another important principle to remember when recognizing the accomplishments in people's lives is to ultimately bring the focus of the achievement back to Christ. It's crucial to note that not only was the goodness of Christ what made the victory possible, but it was also the purpose for which it was originally accomplished. In the words of Jathani, presenting Christ as the goal of life and not simply the means is critical in uprooting the idolatry that we've been fed. Rather than a tool to be employed, they must see the beauty and goodness of Christ as far greater than that of this world. At first glance, it may appear as though recognizing others and providing context for scripture is completely unrelated, but upon closer examination, this is proven otherwise. Providing context for scripture is essentially the recognition of the audience to whom it was originally written. Recognizing this fact allows those who are being taught the truth of scripture to identify not only what the text says, but also the manner in which it was intended to be read and the implications and understandings that were expected to be recognized and held by the people reading it. Identifying these factors allows Christians to understand biblical teaching in a corporate understanding instead of automatically making the individualistic assumption that the scripture is written for the sole benefit of the person reading it. The same biblical truths that the scriptures convey still get across when they are presented in this manner, but it also grows into a deeper public truth by being viewed through the corporate lens of context. Tom Holland, a teacher at the Evangelical Theological College of Wales, and nowadays a famous Spider-Man actor, but not who this paper is referring to, uh, this Tom Holland argues, The present individualistic reading of scripture which has largely lost the corporate dimension of the early church's mindset, has promoted an individualism that has sometimes been unbiblical, unhealthy, and dangerously divisive. I also believe that a corporate reading of the New Testament will lead us to a fuller and richer ecclesiology in which we realize that the scripture is not emphasizing the individual above the covenant community, but puts the individual in his or her rightful place within this holy nation. Instead of seeing the New Testament as having a doctrine of individualism that has little to say about the church, 
we will discover that when the texts are read corporately, the focus of the New Testament is the church, and the individual is not cut loose, but is given a secure placing within the people of God. We see here that a corporate reading of Scripture does not hinder the individual from applying it to his or her life, but instead allows one to do so with a more appropriate perspective. Application of Scripture should not be sought after until it is read in the light of the corporate dimension. However, this does require a lot of work and research to fully understand the context behind a passage. It can be tempting for Christians to give up and choose to simply disregard context as outdated tradition, but it is preferable to view tradition in a positive way, as the voice of those through whom the Spirit has worked in previous generations to bring glory to Christ and understanding of the divine revelation. The third element of Sunday morning services that I will discuss is the development of inclusiveness. In Matthew 28:19, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Part of the task to which Christians have been appointed is the proclamation of the truth found in Scripture and the presentation of Christ's love to people in an impartial manner. This is essential to the nature of Christianity for many different reasons. In a purely practical sense, Congregations depend solely on people who are free to affiliate or not, participate or not. Without enough participating affiliates, congregations have scant resources for survival. And people have a tendency to detach from social connections where they feel as though those connections interfere with or threaten their notion of freedom. In order for churches to keep themselves from having to shut their doors due to a lack of people, it is necessary for its members to create a loving community in which people feel accepted. Unfortunately, as evidenced in an earlier section of this paper, some congregations become so accepting of the way people live that they no longer challenge those people to be better than they already are. Instead, these people are allowed to continue in their sin without any kind of consequences from the body of Christ. A healthy middle balance needs to be established and maintained between the two extremes of rejecting people for their mistakes and giving people a false mentality of spiritual growth being something that is non-essential. Expecting people to be perfect before welcoming them into a community of believers is also an unhealthy practice. One of the New Testament church's most effective forms of outreach was to symbolize the reality of God's love through the members' love for one another. In order for non-Christians to witness this kind of selfless love, they first needed to be allowed into the community and given the opportunity to experience it. The sad part is that Christians already show this level of love and acceptance. However, they only show it to those who are already a part of their clique. Johnson notes, Religious individuals have reported positive attitudes toward similar religious others, in-group favoritism, and negative attitudes toward non-religious others. Also worth noting is that in a survey conducted by a member of the Department of Psychology at the University of Virginia, consisting of over 1,500 people in which over 1,000 were Christians, it was discovered that Christians contributed more money to the religious charities than non-religious people 
So membership in the religious in-group did predict, did predict favoritism. It is important for Christians to remember that they were once unbelievers themselves. And even if there are people who do not believe exactly as they do, they should still display the love of Christ to all. This is even explained through scripture as a parable. Johnson explains, The Christian parable of the Good Samaritan teaches people to be tolerant and helpful towards those who violate their views. In the parable, a man aids a religious outgroup member in need of help. Although this story is often presented as an example of how Christians ought to treat their neighbors, Christians do not always treat outgroup members well. Rather, Christians' behaviors and attitudes often reflect other biblical scriptures that advocate treating outgroups, such as non-believers, with discrimination and believers with favoritism. If Christians are to display to others the same love of Christ that they have received, then it involves laying down their lives for others, such as making sacrifices, while they are still unbelievers. There are all kinds of people who have different ages, race, social standings, family backgrounds, etc., and the church needs to be welcoming to all of these people. By allowing different kinds of people to join together with us in serving and worshiping God, Christian congregations come closer to representing the body of Christ worldwide. Including a wide variety of individuals also allows the possibility for future growth. Stavros S. Fotua, hope I'm getting that name right too, a professor at the University of Cyprus with a PhD in theology, explains this saying, Being different is not a cause for hostility and discord, but is rather the spark for sharing and communication. Even Paul placed a high emphasis and allowing a wide variety of people to participate in the body of Christ because he believed that each person had a contribution to make. Impartial inclusiveness of all kinds should be evident through the lifestyles of the body of Christ on a daily basis. Finally, I will now look at the fourth aspect of Sunday morning services, the after-service programs. Along with this analysis, I will propose a particular kind of program that can take place after Sunday morning services, the participation of meals as a body of believers on a weekly basis. This was an element of the New Testament church that can still be utilized in modern Christian culture. Sharing in meals together was a staple point of the early church. Part of the reason for this was that, until the early part of the 4th century when Constantine legitimized Christianity, the majority of Christian gatherings took place in people's homes. According to Hussey, the meal was vital because as the members of the community ate and drank together, their unity became a visible expression. Thus, the meal that a church shares together reminds its members of their relationship with Christ and with one another, in the same way that participation in, in an ordinary meal cements and symbolizes the bonds within a family. It is seen here that, in the sharing of meals with one another, it is possible for Christians to be reminded of their place as a member of the body of Christ, thus disintegrating the mentality of individualism. One of the downfalls to the type of Sunday morning services present in America today is that they do not allow the opportunity for discussion among the people who attend it. Social communication is the basis for establishing any kind of friendship with others. 
If Christians are unable to engage in conversation with one another for more than just a couple minutes once a week before and after the Sunday service takes place, then they will not have enough time to form deep and meaningful relationships with one another. Their conversations will be limited to little more than small talk. The church can help set the groundwork for forming these relationships within members of the congregation by inviting them to places where there are opportunities for significant discussion. One of the ways that churches do this is through small groups, but this type of gathering will be discussed at a later point. Another way for the church to lay the groundwork for building meaningful relationships is to establish a weekly habit of eating a meal together after the service. This method works better at uniting a body of believers than any other type of program, such as a Bible study or a prayer meeting, because it allows congregational members to engage in social interaction instead of being limited to only spiritual discussions. Of course, spiritual discussion is also important in the process of Christians strengthening one another, but it would be more beneficial to have these discussions take place in weekday small groups. Also, with most Sunday services taking place shortly before lunch, people are usually hungry after the service. Another benefit worth noting about having the entire congregation coming together in a social context is that it shows the equality among pastors, church leaders, church members, visitors, and even non-Christians who are attending church for the first time. Every person, no matter what his or her position or current level of spiritual maturity, is simply an individual who is born with a sin nature and is only redeemed through the power of Christ's sacrifice. Few activities within the church display this fact as well as having everyone come together on equal ground for the purpose of sharing in an action performed by all people on a daily basis. Having all the members of a church community sharing a meal together will elevate the experience of community throughout the church. The concept of providing food for an entire congregation week after week can seem like a daunting proposal at first. The notion of having to regularly spend a significant chunk of the church budget for something as simple as helping members of the congregation become better friends with each other is enough to make church leaders drop the idea entirely. However, it is not necessary for the church to spend large amounts of money in order to feed all the members of a congregation. One of the possible methods for accomplishing this incredible feat is to have a small restaurant or deli within the church. It's not uncommon for Christians to pay money to eat at restaurants on Sunday afternoons, so it would not be difficult for them to make the transition of paying money to the church for a Sunday lunch. This money could then provide the income necessary for purchasing the food, and it could also become a means for increasing the church budget. If an endeavor of this scale seems unmanageable by the church staff, and there is no one in the congregation that would be willing to manage such an idea— the possibility of having the church members bring their own food in a potluck-type style is another opportunity for organizing such a meal. In this type of method, the church would probably still be required to purchase disposable plates and plastic cutlery for people to use, but members of the congregation participating in the meal might even volunteer to cover this cost. It would be beneficial for a church board that is considering the possibility of implementing weekly meals into their church programs 
to figure out through surveys and discussion which method of providing the food would be more successful and well-received by the congregation. Despite all of these areas where work can be done in order to help build a community mindset in the body of Christ within Sunday morning services, there is still only so much that can be done in the weekly gatherings of large groups of people. Because of this, it becomes necessary to have certain activities taking place throughout the week in order to strengthen and unify the body of Christ as a whole. I will now take a look at some of these programs and consider methods of focusing them in a manner geared towards erasing the individualistic mindset held by American Christians. The programs being considered will include small groups, ministry groups, and accountability slash mentoring partnerships. The first weekday program that will be considered is the use of small groups. Small groups have become widely used throughout American culture. In a 1996 survey, it was discovered that 4 in 10 of all American Christians belong to a small group, which represents about 15% of the total population of the USA. These small groups have the potential for tremendous impact. However, if these groups are not handled correctly, they also have the potential for making things worse. Small group leaders need to be intentional in setting the focus for small group discussion and activities. It is possible for people who attend small group meetings to view the gatherings as opportunities to place the focus on themselves in the presence of others, which only further builds the ideology of individualism. Small group leaders should help the other members to realize that the purpose of the group is not to focus on one's own self, but rather the goal is to help out the other members in the group. Walton warns, Small groups, as we have them, will continue to challenge us in defaulting to an inward-looking, mutual support model. They will need to be regularly reminded of our missional calling and located in churches, structures, and values which help people to address the outward orientation of Christian living. If the focus of the small group is only established on the first day or two, and never mentioned again after that, it will be easy for the purpose of the gatherings to be taken off track. Having the correct focus in a small group opens the door for all kinds of beneficial possibilities. They can help individuals deal with the traumatic experience of divorce, they can enable a transformative experience among individuals at both a personal and spiritual level, and they can help Christians move from being an occasional church attendee to being a believer who seeks to live out his or her faith on a daily basis. According to national data from over 78,000 U.S. worshipers in over 400 congregations, small group members report a greater sense of belonging attend services more frequently, and contribute a higher percentage of their income to their congregation. Small group meetings do not always have to be spiritual in nature. In fact, the meetings of the early church were often informal and social. These meetings could include aspects as diverse as prayer meetings and impromptu evangelistic gatherings to things like participating in an evening of Christian fellowship or sharing a meal with one another. However, not all small group meetings can be social in nature. It's still important to have gatherings where a definite focus is placed 
on achieving spiritual growth. In order for this spiritual growth to be obtained, it must first be defined. Although church discipleship programs often encourage spiritual growth, it does not always take place since the stated goals of such programs are ambiguous because spiritual maturity is so difficult to assess. In order for growth to take place, small group leaders need to work with those involved in their groups in order to help those people set concrete goals that they can work towards and to which they can be held accountable by the other members of the group. These goals will be different for each member as every individual situation is unique in one way or another. However, the underlying principles behind these goals are usually shared by others. Due to the personal nature of small group communities, they work best if they remain few in number. The early church gatherings were rarely made up of more than 15 or 20 people and would multiply into two groups if they ever grew larger than that. Although the primary reasoning for this was because of the size of the houses they were meeting in, there are benefits to keeping the number of participants in small groups somewhat low. Keeping these groups few in number allows the members to foster accountability and trust to a greater extent than occurs in congregational education classes. Small groups as a whole can be very effective in building members of a Christian community closer to one another. They can have a positive effect on individual religious involvement, regardless of the congregation size in which they are being utilized, by breaking down larger congregations into more manageable units that provide individuals with relationships and community. Christian leaders all across America should continue to use small groups regardless of their congregation size and make sure that the focus of these groups preserve an attitude of helping out others rather than seeking to use the people around them for their own personal benefit. Another type of gathering that takes place among Christian communities throughout the week is a ministry group. These consist of people coming together for the purpose of pouring into the lives of others. Ministry groups can be divided into two categories, outreach and edification. It is extremely difficult for people involved in an outreach group to develop a mindset, a mindset of individualism because such people are devoting time, energy, and resources to the reaching out of others. However, it can sometimes be difficult to develop the mentality of, I want to help people, into the actions of, this is how I'm going to help people, and eventually maintaining it as, is what I'm doing still helping people? In order to do this, it becomes helpful to observe the manner by which ministry was conducted in the New Testament church. There are numerous examples throughout Scripture, especially in the book of Acts, of members from the early church participating in local outreach. Stephen distributed food to widows so that the apostles could focus on preaching the gospel message. Peter and John healed a layman outside of the temple gate, and Philip explained the book of Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him afterwards. These three stories show us that outreach can be done in many different ways. Stephen displayed the love of Christ through his actions by making sure that the food was being equally distributed among the widows. Peter and John showed the power of Christ by performing a miracle. And Philip revealed the truth of God by bringing light to the word of God. 
In these examples, we see that Christians can participate in outreach by meeting a physical need, providing prayer for someone in a difficult situation, or directly explaining the truth found within Scripture. If outreach groups focus on ministering to others in these three ways, they will not have to worry about whether or not they are impacting the world for the kingdom of God. It is also important that people who are involved in outreach ministry do not begin to falsely believe that everything they do and accomplish comes solely through their own efforts. The purpose of outreach ministry is to lead others to Christ. If a ministry begins to point people to the leaders in charge of the ministry, then it is no longer an effective form of outreach. There are also ministry groups that focus on edifying the body of Christ. There are a wide variety of these groups, including worship teams, prayer groups, Bible study, media teams, so on and so forth. These groups consist of people, paid or unpaid, who devote time and energy into activities that support the local church congregation. Even though these groups are not strictly weekday-only groups, and they can often conduct ministry in the context of Sunday morning services, I've included them in the category of weekday activities because they are not all limited specifically to Sunday mornings. Although having people whose positions are primarily for the benefit of members within the congregation, rather than participating in outreach, may seem to be driven by a consumer mindset, this is actually not the case. The people who are involved in the ministries listed above are people who work on a regular basis for those outside of themselves. If the church focused the entirety of its efforts to the sole purpose of outreach and did not take the time to help those already in the church and keep the body of Christ strong, then the church would gradually grow weak and eventually die, causing it to no longer be able to participate in outreach anymore. It is important for people who are involved in edification-oriented ministry groups to remember that they should never be the focus of their actions. Whether someone is a worship leader, Bible study leader, or sound engineer, the emphasis should never be placed on the music, structure of the lessons, mix on the soundboard, or the people responsible for putting those things together. The focus should always be placed on helping people grow closer to Christ, and everything else should be done for the benefit of that purpose. These ministries, both outreach and edification, can be useful in building a mindset of community and destroying the ideology of individualism from American Christian culture. The important principle to practice when utilizing them is to keep the focus remained on Christ and others instead of oneself. Otherwise, they can end up causing more harm than good. Finally, I want to address the use of accountability and mentorship. Although I've already discussed some of the theology behind accountability and student-mentor relationships, I want to take a closer look as to the specific workings of these partnerships and discuss methods that can be used in order to ensure that such relationships do not become consumer-driven. According to Hahn, the reversal of hyper-individualism, worldliness, and division in the church will only occur through the intentional discipleship of God's people, teaching and training them to live for Christ, to correct their faulty ecclesiologies, and to have a biblical attitude about unity, holiness, and community. 
Although these things can take place to a certain degree in church services by pastors and teachers, and to an even further degree within the context of small group gatherings, there is no method as direct in handling these issues as one-to-one discipleship and accountability. These partnerships allow the large number of Christians within entire congregations to be able to meet with each other on a regular basis to deal with specific individual needs. As mentioned before, every person's situation is different, and although the ultimate goal may be the same for all Christians, the paths for getting there vary depending on each person. Some believers are further down the path of spiritual maturity than others, and some are coming from a completely different situation altogether. Setting up a partnership where two Christians meet with each other throughout the week and work through theological questions, methodological obstacles, and any other kind of spiritual problem allows believers to have the opportunity to address day-to-day issues without having to rely on one's own intellect and experiences. It is not possible for the pastor of an entire congregation to deal with every scriptural curiosity and spiritual crisis of every member who is a part of his or her church. Thankfully, such a thing is not necessary if these tasks are passed down to other believers in the body of Christ. Moses' father-in-law Jethro encouraged him to practice this principle in Exodus 18 verses 13 through 26. At the time, every problem the people had was brought to Moses, and he would deal with all of them by himself. This ended up taking a major toll on Moses' time and energy. In order to fix this issue, Jethro suggested that Moses appoint others who could deal with some of the simpler cases. By setting up opportunities for Christians within a church to connect with an accountability partner, pastors no longer have to worry about checking up on every member of a congregation throughout the week. Although having someone to keep them accountable may seem like a trivial matter to some Christians, it can make an incredible difference in their spiritual growth in the long run. Problems that seem minuscule at first can grow into massive obstacles if they are not handled correctly early on. By having believers make sure that one another is maintaining a lifestyle filled with the acting out of spiritual disciplines and deal with problems that an individual is not able to deal with on his or her own, helps prevent larger spiritual issues from taking control of people's lives. Jathani notes, Simple but often overlooked practices like prayer, fasting, service, and friendship can detoxify our souls from consumerism while strengthening our spiritual immune systems against further assaults. Since these disciplines are so important, Christians should have someone regularly keeping them accountable for maintaining them. Student-mentor relationships, while still being a possible avenue for fulfilling the required role of accountability in a believer's life, add a deeper level to the dynamics of the partnership that peer-to-peer interactions can never have. In a student-mentor partnership, the primary focus is on the one being mentored, and the one mentoring is able to share experiences and teachings that have already been received and processed. This provides quicker means of spiritual growth for Christians than peer-to-peer accountability does because one of them already knows the answers to the questions that are being asked, 
rather than both individuals going through the process of trying to figure it out. Ideally, these student-mentor relationships, as well as accountability partnerships, should develop naturally over the course of time in a Christian's life without having to be orchestrated or set up through the influence of other people. Unfortunately, this is not always the case, especially with the direction of American Christianity. Hahn notes concerning this decline in naturally forming student-mentor relationships, If spiritual lives develop in similar ways, then immature Christians are naturally going to focus on their own spiritual growth. But as they mature, they will gradually focus more and more on the spiritual growth of others. In a situation where sanctification is decreasing, however, fewer and fewer Christians will reach the level of maturity where their focus is on others. When this takes place in an atmosphere of hyper-individualism, many Christians will be left on their own to grow or not grow spiritually, depending upon their own convictions. Because of this decline, it is sometimes necessary for church leadership to help members of a congregation establish a student-mentor relationship with another Christian in the church. It may even be necessary with the with the decline of Christians, who could be defined as spiritually mature, for one believer to act as a mentor to multiple believers at the same time, although this is not ideal. For Christian leaders who are wanting to help members in their congregation find a spiritual mentor, here's a quick example for a process that can be used. First, compile a list and contact individuals who may be willing to be a mentor. Second, Put together a list of people who have a desire to be mentored. Third, divide the mentors and students into groupings of people who are within driving distance of each other. Fourth, divide each grouping into males and females in order to avoid further complications. Fifth, if possible, establish age groupings between the remaining sections in a manner where the mentor is far enough apart in age to not be dealing with the exact same age-related issues, but still close enough in age to understand those issues in their current context. Sixth, begin pairing each each mentor with one student as the spirit leads you. Lastly, equally distribute the remaining students to mentors that match their grouping the best. Although this is not the verified perfect formula for assigning students to mentors, It does provide an outline for Christians to use that can be added to or taken away from, according to each situation's specific circumstances. As displayed in this paper, there are plenty of areas within the church where there are possibilities for growth. As they currently are, many churches contain elements of individualism. In order to effectively build a community mindset within the body of Christ, Christians need to adjust their words, actions, and focuses to eliminate the aspects of individualism that is present throughout the culture of American believers. The ideology of individualism is a very present danger to the culture of American Christianity. Continuing too far down the path of individualism within Christianity that was first sparked by the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther separated from the Roman Catholic Church and was carried along by the teachings of John Calvin, has built within believers an ideology 
that is tearing Christianity apart from the inside out. The emphasis on individual intellect from the teachings of the Age of Enlightenment that came about as a result of the effects caused by the Protestant Reformation has negatively impacted the development of Christian culture in America. This negative impact is most prominently revealed in the comparison of lifestyles and attitudes between the early Church of the New Testament and the modern American Church. These differences can be seen within the aspects of the formation of theology, dedication to accountability within a local body of believers, and the perception of purpose concerning involvement among a congregation of believers. Whereas these areas within the early church reflect community-oriented principles, these same areas within American Christian culture display elements of the ideologies of individualism and consumerism. Fortunately, there are methods by which Christians can prevent and act against these individualistic tendencies, both in the context of Sunday morning services and through the appropriate use of weekday church-related activities. Within the weekly gathering of believers on Sunday mornings, changes can be made to the terminology used by Christians, the public recognition of others' actions, the development of an inclusive mindset among members of the congregation, and the use of programs that take place after the primary service. Individualistic mentalities can also be challenged and overcome through the use of weekday church-related activities, such as small groups where a large congregation can gather together in fewer numbers in order to establish an environment that has a tighter focus. Ministry groups of both the outreach nature of leading those outside of the church closer to Christ, as well as the edification nature where the body of Christ is nurtured and kept healthy, and accountability partnerships of both the peer-to-peer manner and the student-mentor interactions. Individualism is certainly a widespread dangerous issue that needs to be addressed and fought against in American Christian culture. However, it is not undefeatable. If the appropriate methods are used, it is possible for Christian leaders to begin transforming the individualistic attitudes of believers in modern American culture back to the community-focused, Christ-centered mindset that was present in the New Testament church. And that's the end of the paper. That went a lot longer than I thought it was going to. I hope uh, everyone stuck around for the ending, and I hope that this was meaningful to you. Like I said, I like going back and reading it sometimes, and, you know, partly just to see the hard work that I put in. And there's a lot of stuff in there that are good reminders for us to keep in mind on how we live as the body of Christ. So I hope you enjoyed it, and if you have any questions or comments for me, you can contact me through the Sermon in the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page, or you can email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. If you want the list of resources that I used in this paper, let me know and I can send that to you and you can look up um, the people I reference and um, the polls that I use, things like that. I'd be happy to give you that information. But until next time, thank you for taking the time to listen, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your week. Thank you.